Welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. If I sound a bit different today, it is because I have misplaced my microphone. So the audio might not be as good, but when I recorded the episode, I was using it, so that should sound normal. Now, longtime listeners of the podcast will know that I have tried to dedicate episodes to the life cycle of the average person in the society that we all study and love. And we've had episodes on on birth, and infancy, and childhood, and uh, health and disease as known through uh, analysis of skeletal remains, and a number of episodes on daily life generally. But I'm trying to kind of work through the life cycle, at which point our next stop would be so transitions from adolescence to adulthood. And I thought it would be fascinating to focus first on girls and women. And very fortunately, an amazing study of precisely one aspect of this uh, came into my hands at just the right moment. And this is a detailed study uh, by Gabriel Radel, who is a professor in the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, who specializes in liturgical studies. And we'll get to that in a moment. It's, it's important. Now, the article in question focuses on the question of veils and generally headscarves and, you know, did women wear them and which women and when and what do we know about it and what did it signify? And in particular, at the moment when girls seem to have gone through some sort of quasi-liturgical ritual um, where their hair was bound up in some way and presumably there was some kind of headgear involved. Now, I want to talk about that kind of ritual itself in my introduction here because it's known from a set of like prayer books that we have very, very many of these. And they're collections of prayers that presumably priests um, speak at specific moments when their congregations um, ask them. And th these are fascinating and very little studied uh, sources for social life and daily experiences and so on. There are whole collections of which prayer to use at specific moments or moment that, you know, moments of tension or uncertainty, um, like uh, there's, there's a drought, um, there are you know, rumors of barbarians coming, you know, your, your kid is going off to school or, you know, you name it. One person who's studying these collections, both trying to trace the transmission um, and the process by which the prayers were collected, you know, where, when, and so forth, but also what they tell us about social life is Claudia Rapp, the University of Vienna. And at a conference, she gave me this sort of incredible um, peek into, you know, just how much they reveal and how little studied they are. Now, we would certainly benefit from a comprehensive global study of these texts, but also from very individual focused ones. And that's what we're going to be doing today. So there is one of these prayers in particular concerns the binding up of the hair of a young maiden. 
And that's the one that we'll be talking about today. Now, this is important for a number of reasons, uh, which you may recall from our episodes on dress and these sort of really dark areas in what we know about Byzantine dress or what we don't know. Um, and women's veils and you know, headgear and scarves in, in general are one of those areas. Our sources give very contradictory indications about who wore them, when, and so forth. And I thought that a sort of comprehensive you know, discussion of those kinds of questions would be inherently fascinating um, and fill in some of those um, gaps, as the article in fact does, by using a wide range of textual and visual sources, um, including Pselos a lot, because he wrote about women, uh, the women in his family. Uh, so this is a wonderful case study of how a liturgical approach, uh, coupled with some textual and visual art historical evidence, just produces the, the, the really the best results. And so I was interested in the methodological implications here as well, and sort of the, the possibility for convergence among these different disciplines that doesn't happen too often. Uh, so without any further delay, um, here is my discussion with Gabriel. Thanks, as always, to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes on their website. Uh, here we go. Gabriel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. So you've written the most fascinating article that I've read about women's veiling and women's hair in Byzantium. And it, it was, it's so detailed and you tie it to so many things, literature and liturgy and other things that start with lit. <laughs> and anyway, now, I think it's important to state for the audience that you didn't come to this question of um, you know, women's veiling from a background in the study of gender and women's history, which obviously you do have, you know, you've done your basics and so forth. But you come from the area of the study of liturgy, mm -hmm. um, which is your main area of expertise. So can you tell us a little bit about that study area um, and how it led you to write this uh, fascinating article on veiling? Sure. Yeah, that's that's a, a straightforward question, but it's got a pretty long answer. So I'll try to try to keep it uh, as succinct as possible. So, yeah, you mentioned my backgrounds in in liturgy, the study of the history of Byzantine liturgy, most specifically. And I come from a formation that's very specific. I studied uh, in the city of Rome at the Pontifical Oriental Institute, where I did most of my graduate formation. Uh, and that's a place where I had the fortune to study under um, the last generation of uh, these Jesuit scholars of the history of Byzantine religion, who were especially focused on the history of liturgy and the study of liturgical manuscripts. Um, and they kind of brought the best of two worlds together. If you think of um, 19th and 20th century German um, comparative textual analysis mm -hmm. with uh, what was prior to the revolution in Russia, this sort of 19th, early 20th century, amazing uh, Russian schools of the study of uh, Byzantine religious history. Mm -hmm. And so they were really trying to bring these two things together. And in fact, uh, some of the early founders of the Pontifical Oriental Institute went and bought entire, you know, running series of collections of um, periodicals and stuff from, from Russia mm -hmm. uh, to the point that you have, you know, at the Oriental Institute today, some of the only complete running series of some, um, you know, early 
of Byzantine uh, journals from a pre-revolutionary Russia. So it's, uh, it was this interesting uh, school and an interesting moment to be there um, and to really get a training and working with Byzantine liturgical manuscripts. Um, for people who are familiar with Byzantine studies, um, they'll be familiar with some of the, the names in the study of Byzantine uh, liturgy, people like Juan Mateos, Robert Taft. And um, from the outside of Byzantine liturgical studies, one could easily get the impression that a lot has been done because there are these massive mm -hmm. tomes of mm -hmm. uh, books that are can be, can be intimidating to the outsider where you'll have, you know, hundreds of pages written on, you know, rubrical changes within uh, within manuscript texts. But uh, as one looks at the manuscript sources, one quickly realizes that so much has not been done. Uh, this, the manuscripts that these um, sort of giants in the field looked at, they were looking at small portions of these texts, focused on rites like the Eucharist or baptism. And in these same manuscripts, you have tons of uh, liturgical practices of the Byzantine world that have yet to be systematically studied. Yeah. And, you know, for, for people outside the field, it would be, you know, really important to point out that the majority of our texts from the Byzantine world are liturgical texts. When you look at, at, at catalogs, we see them categorized, you know, in these, uh, these particular ways where you'll have like biblical texts as one category, and then liturgical texts as a separate category. And what, what catalogers mean is like a priest prayer book. And then you'll have hymnography books. Um, but all of these texts, whether they be the biblical lectionaries, the, the priest prayer books, the hymnographic books, these were all liturgical books and they all functioned within these embodied practices. And so, yeah. I mean, this is, this is this, this field of these mountains of manuscripts that haven't been studied that I try to go through and make sense of me and, and, and a group of others in this, in this field. Uh, and specifically what I've been working on the last several years has been on the history of marriage in Byzantium, hmm. told primarily through uh, these unedited manuscript texts that conserve the rights of betrothal and matrimony. Um, and it's important to point out that when we talk about Byzantine liturgy, you know, the, the Byzantine um, political realm uh, you know, had fluctuating borders, you know, the Eastern Roman Empire shifted in its territorial yeah. control, but the Byzantine religious tradition uh, continued to thrive in areas that were outside those borders. So when we talk about the history of Byzantine liturgy, it's a history that's kind of the history of multiple different regions. And that's one of the methodological issues we deal with is we're dealing with uh, multiple um, regional liturgical traditions that interacted, but were also distinct. So places like Southern Italy, for which mm -hmm. we have a disproportionately large number of, of sources, Salento, uh, Calabria, Sicily, going all the way to the Syro-Palestinian region and everything in between. So we're looking at multiple different Byzantine religious traditions. Yeah, I think what um, you said about the manuscripts is important to stress because Obviously, many of us in the field, myself included, have a either a historian's bias or a classicist bias or both. <laughs> and so we're drawn to like Eustathius commentary on Homer or Telos, right. you know, chronographia. And that's a one manuscript. Right. But if you were to look through the catalogs, just as you said, it's more like liturgical, 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 prayer book, oh. prayer book, prayer book, liturgical, liturgical. Right. Maybe something secular and yeah. start again. Right. Yeah. And you see that bias played out in digitization projects, you know, yes. or microfilm projects of the 20th century. Uh, so that can be the frustrating thing, which necessitates scholars of liturgy having to do a lot of visits to, to these, uh, you know, collections. Um, yes. So, 
so to your point about how I got into veiling, it came through this back door, uh, you know, of looking at marriage uh, ritual, because in looking at the history of marriage in Byzantium, uh, you know, regionally, I was looking also at uh, Slavonic sources that were derivative, for the most part, from Greek manuscripts, but also made interesting uh, changes to their marriage practices according to local uh, specific Slavic cultural uh, practices. And one of these shows up in a, in a late uh, in a late Byzantine, uh, in a late medieval Balkan region. Uh, we find that some Slavic communities had this very peculiar practice of veiling a new bride. In fact, one of the manuscripts is very specific. It says that they veiled her after her first sexual encounter with her new husband. Uh, so it was a sort of status change into mm. becoming you know, a matron and putting on her, her matron's head head garb. Uh, and this was very interesting because this was not showing up at all in the Byzantine sources. And yet in the oldest Byzantine liturgical manuscripts, this same prayer shows up, but it shows up for a completely different purpose. So that's how I got into trying to uncover what is this text originally and how is it different from what these late medieval Slavs adapted it to. Yeah. And to give a bit of background and correct me if I get any of this wrong, when we're talking about liturgical manuscripts or prayer books, um, it's not just like the liturgy that someone might imagine, you know, sort of performed on Sundays or Easter or whatever, but there's this whole host of, you know, prayers and rites that are conducted to, uh, in association with all kinds of events in life, right? And you mentioned yeah. marriage, <clears throat> but I was actually speaking with uh, Claudia Rapp, who's mm -hmm. um, at, at Vienna. She's running a project that's trying to, I don't know, put some order <laughs> into these things. Right. But there, like you, you go and you ask the priest for a prayer for like all kinds of things, and she mentioned yeah. like the first day that a child goes to school. Exactly, blessing your flock of sheep, uh, yes. building a new house. There's multiple versions of some of these texts, which shows you how popular these these yeah. uh, these practices were. Uh, okay, so let's talk about the ritual that is the rite of binding up a woman's head. Right. <laughs> this is this quoting here. So right. where and when and for whom would this have been performed? And, and yeah, how, how do you see this right? Yeah, so uh, I think this right that shows up among some of the earliest Byzantine liturgical manuscripts is what we might call a, a coming of age ritual uh, for young women. Uh, we have a lot of early Christian uh, male authored texts that speak about a supposed importance for uh, the coverage of women's heads, especially their hair. Uh, and these texts imply, or sometimes they even state explicitly, that uh, these social expectations began at puberty. Uh, so it's important for women to have their head covered. Uh, we can talk more about that if you want some of these some of these specific texts. But uh, I think that the prayer is clearly functioning in that milieu. It's showing up already in the early uh, earliest Byzantine manuscripts. You know, our first Byzantine priest prayer book is from Calabria, and it's from uh, the late eighth century. And so, anytime we have a text that shows up there, it's a bit of a guessing game how much further back it goes. But we know it goes back further because this prayer book that was copied in Calabria has a lot of rights that have nothing to do with Calabria, you know, rights mm. concerning the emperor, concerning the patriarch. So we know that a Constantinopolitan model was being used by this Calabrian scribe in the, in the late 700s. Um, and so this is one of those prayers that shows up there. So it's, I believe, you know, older than that uh, manuscript. And I think it goes back 
probably, you know, to circa fifth, sixth century based off of uh, the circulation of patristic texts around the importance of women's head coverage. And the reason why it's a coming of age ritual, in my opinion, is not only because the text itself makes a number of allusions to a woman's coming of age, but in some of the manuscripts, um, this rite for the binding up of a woman's hair or head uh, is found immediately adjacent to a prayer for a man's first shave, um, which would be the, the male counterpart, right, right. Yeah, which is another text I, I hope to look at and, and work on in the future. Yeah, and you do a wonderful job in the article of tying this to you know, ancient practices and conceptions of you know, women's hair and, and these, um, you know, and veiling and binding up. And we'll talk in a moment about what those words mean and stretching them out into the Byzantine continuum. Um, so let's get like material, let's get granular here and mm -hmm. ask what exactly is being referred to because like wh what is the language of binding up the hair mean and how does it um, relate to the term of veiling which you use because you know modern audiences will think of a number of practices when they mm -hmm. think when they hear veiling they anything you know from a burqa to yeah, headscarf or whatever yeah. so and I, and I know the language is opaque and you know mm -hmm. I don't want to press you to <laughs> make a commitment here that you know that that you feel unsafe or uh, you know uncertain about but mm -hmm. how precise can we be about the actual practices that are being described yeah, so your point about ambiguity is 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 very true. When I've talked about this right with some people, you know, informally, I'll realize midway through the conversation that they're imagining a, a, a Byzantine hijab or something, mm -hmm. or or they could be projecting onto past Byzantine women a type of you know full maphorian, like a huge you know large textile that we would see in Byzantine icons of you know early female saints or the Theotokos. Right. So you've got uh, you know these different imaginings that go on. Um, I, it's like you say, the, the text itself uh, refers to head coverings, but the title of the prayer is the right for binding up. Uh, it, originally, the, the earliest sources say binding up a woman. Uh, and then later texts will we'll add, you know, think of the head uh, of a woman. So, uh, yeah, I, and that's because I think hair is a metonym for the person. And we find that all over, over texts. Mm. Um, and uh, so the, the earliest scribes didn't need to specify what was, what was being talked about. It. The, the hair was at issue. And I think what we find, uh, you know, being represented is that um, the idea of binding up is, is uh, emblematic of, of ordering a person's life. And so what we see is a young girl going from, uh, let's say, the carefree years of her youth uh, and free-flowing hair to uh, taking, taking that hair, uh, binding it up, putting it under control, uh, and manifesting self-control as she's, as she's entering into puberty and adulthood. There's also, uh, I think, sexual notions in terms of um, sexual self-control that are implied in the text and also embedded within uh, mm -hmm. notions of women's hair. Uh, and so I think uh, the most important thing is binding up, keeping it orderly, if you will. Uh, and then a variety of different hair coverings could, could be used. Um, and also depending on uh, the social circumstance, um, who's who's in her company. Uh, but uh, I think the coverage 
the binding up and the coverage are the main issues. And I, the prayer is uh, specifically ambiguous about what's doing that coverage. And I think the coverage would, would vary based on circumstance and vary uh, also based on, you know, if we can use the word, you know, fashion or at least style. Um, and this is an important point because as I've walked around and looked at um, like neo-Byzantine images, uh, I was last uh, last year, I was looking, I uh, was uh, in the Hram Svetoksava in Belgrade, this massive church that they just finished decorating, modeled, you know, kind of in part on Hagia Sophia. And they just finished all the mosaics and the frescoes there. I was walking around and there are a number of female saints who are depicted with free flowing hair and a veil on top which is not typical for actual Byzantine imagery where mm -hmm. the hair is generally ordered, meaning bound up, tied up, and then you'll have a veil put on top. So what you find is people today are often projecting back and even projecting onto Byzantine art uh, notions that we have of what head coverage means today. Uh, but this notion of binding up seems to be critical importance, um, at least in late antiquity. Yeah, and I can easily imagine how different communities could use that same prayer and believe that they're participating in the same ritual that might have had some antiquity behind it by that point, mm -hmm. but are actually doing very different things with the hair and with the covering. Exactly. But, but think that they're doing this time-honored thing. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the history of a liturgy in a certain yes. way. <laughs> Yeah, the the and trying to parse out, you know, where is the continuity and where is the continuity of interpretation about yes. things that are quite different. Yeah. Yes. Um, so we should sort of methodologically allow for a kind of spectrum of practices. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some in which the hair is bound up in a knot. Um, I I don't know if we can imagine like those like early imperial Roman, you know female dues, you know, that are mm -hmm. like so elaborate, their works of art in themselves. Okay, right. so probably not that. And the veiling could probably also take very many forms from, you know, something more strict that hides more to even possibly <clears throat> a hairnet. Like, mm -hmm. is that one of the possibilities that you came across? Yeah, certainly. I and mean, we have, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of material textile evidence uh, from late antiquity in Byzantium, but we have some, and there have been archaeological studies of women's uh, burials in late antique Egypt, where they found a variety of different types of head coverings in the tombs, mm. including, among other things, hairnets. So it goes back to that thing of, you know, binding up. And then we find this in classical, you know, Greek texts, this idea of, of binding up the hair, but then probably fluctuation of what's actually going on top of that bound up hair. And, um, you know, we have... Uh, late antique busts of women wearing sort of like turbans um, that are going to bind up the hair. Uh, Chrysostom in one text talks about the importance of wrapping up hair on all sides. So he seems to sort of be alluding to the way in a, a particular style, you know, if you're mm -hmm. wrapping, wrapping up on all sides. Uh, so uh, yeah, they're, they're, these, these styles probably shifted, um, but the binding up is the key and it, it could fluctuate in terms of what's actually exposed in terms of, of hair. And because this is part of a social symbolic order, right? Like it designates certain moral qualities, just like you said, it functions within a framework that also has its opposite. And it, it's great that in the article, you also talk about women with loose hair. So in what context are women shown or talked about with loose hair? And what did that signify? Yeah. So precisely because it's a, uh... It's such a strong, you know, association with um, with 
you know, orderliness and decorum and, and social moral norms, uh, artists and individuals could use uh, the absence of a head covering to communicate various things. So uh, one iconographic uh, you know, motif that we find is of, of female martyrs uh, who, you know, female saints typically represented with very bound up, very covered hair. Uh, but there's an exception to that. We have many examples of uh, illuminations and images where a female saint is being martyred, but with loose hair. And that sort of communicates the uh, the, the violence being perpetrated uh, mm. against her. But you could also have artists play with that same thing. So there's a, uh, a really neat fresco in a uh, uh, church in Salento uh, I think it's like 13th century of the martyr Margarita, and she is stripped nude uh, and boiled in a cauldron. So she's being sexually humid humiliated in her nudity, and yet the artists have one item of clothing on her, and it's her head wrap, her head covering, precisely to say that despite her sexual humiliation, she's still preserving her sexual, you know, purity through, you know, the symbol of that uh, of that veil communicating that. Um, but you also have uh, the Maddie Mayer has done some some work on this. There's uh, you know images of, of uh, women in a state of sexual sin uh, can be shown with loose hair, um, and then there's there's notions of loose hair that go back all the way to you know ancient Greece. Uh, the rending of a veil, letting hair hang out as a sign of mourning. Um, and that's something that, you know, uh, ethnographers have even studied in, you know, mm -hmm. southeastern rural, you know, European communities to this day, you know, letting the hair hang out loose, you know, in mourning a, a husband or a father um, is typical. Um, and then there's exceptional cases. Um, St. Mary of Egypt is, uh, is one. Uh, she's typically represented with, with loose hair. And she looks, you know, very similar in some depictions to, to John the Baptist. Uh, mm -hmm. who lived in the same Judean you know, desert. So there's probably some intentional um, play there. Um, but there's sort of this uh, idea of, you know, probably connected to the issues of mourning and repentance um, and also could just simply be uh, communicating a sort of angelic sexlessness um, resulting from her extreme asceticism. So there's, there's different ways in which uh, both real individuals and then artists um, you know, played with uh, issues of veiling and unveiling in, in communicating. Yeah, these are very important um, categories to mention because one might think that, you know, loose hair would in, you know, straightforwardly indicate loose morals. And even in English, you know, the, the two words kind of resonate exactly. in that way. Uh, but that's not the case uh, because, um, as you illustrated, it can mean a range of things. And in, especially in the ascetic case, I, I'm, I think I'm remembering an image of uh, Theoktisti, um, who is who's an, a, an extreme ascetic, you know, living alone, is kind of emaciated, is wearing rags. Mm -hmm. I think her hair is loose. But in that case, it's like this person is so removed from the norms of social life. Exactly that even those rules of decorum have sort of ceased to apply and like, mm -hmm. no one would suspect her loose hair of indicating loose morals. Because, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's kind of like opposites meet, <laughs> you know, in this case, like if you want to be a married, respectable matron, you signify your, your decency through these outward signs of, you know, social conformity and so on. But mm -hmm. for someone who's just outside of that framework altogether, it, those sort of cease to matter. I, yeah. I, I just find it fascinating how these play out. Um, 
Yeah, and it's ironic because one of the you know the situations in which Chrysostom's responding to uh, is probably the Eustathian group, which uh, you mm. know was being accused of having women uh, dress as men, and uh, so yeah, in in its ascetic uh, you know leaning. So uh, yeah, there's sort of you see the you see this this ascetic use of of loose hair, uh, both accepted and uh, rejected. You know. Yeah, the Eustathian group is just so fascinating. Um, I think it's the it's a council of Gangra that condemns them and lists the sorts of things that they were supposed to be doing, right? So like they repudiate marriage, they they repudiate their children, they have equality of the sexes, like all this mm-hmm. stuff. And it just yeah. sounds, oh, that slaves, I think, were supposed to leave their masters and all kinds of, you know, <laughs> cats and dogs living together. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it was a, that's a great group. Um, okay, so let's go back a little bit to the particulars here. Um, have you come across references to veiling that imply that the face or part of the face was also covered? Uh, yes, uh, but we should say that the evidence for for Byzantine women specifically covering their face is scant. Um, there is one reference that uh, refers to the practice in the context of the Komnenian revolt. So in the 12th century, Anna Komneni is writing about uh, an event that occurred in uh, 1081, mm. where there's this shift of power and these Komnenian elite women are during this revolt needing to go unnoticed, be disguised. And they try to go to Hagia Sophia, they go to the cathedral um, disguised, pretending to be uh, visitors from the east who are going to uh, pay a visit to the church and try to get past the guards that way. Um, and at that point, all we're told is that they're going disguised, you know, as as, as women pilgrims. Um, but then when their identity is disclosed, uh, we hear of one of them removing the veil from her face, implying that part of their disguise was to go as these visiting women with veiled faces. Um, so I think what that tells us is that, you know, bottom line, middle Byzantine Constantinopolitan women themselves probably aren't regularly putting a face covering uh, on, but in cosmopolitan middle Byzantine Constantinople, it wouldn't have been unheard of to encounter um, a woman walking on the street with a veil, you know, pl- you know pulled over uh, pulled over her face. Um, so it it was not unknown. Right. And this, you know, today we tend to associate types of veils and face coverings with religion. Um, and that's because of the politicization of, mm-hmm. of veils that we have, you know, in various Western European countries and even in North America. Um, and of course, you know, certain laws that have been passed um, against face veils, etc. Um, but, uh, you know, this, this is not uh, a religious thing for much of the pre-modern world. Uh, for example, Tertullian, uh, you know, this is pre-Islam. Um, Tertullian, he really wants women to be covered. He writes an entire treatise on the veiling of women. And in this, he makes a passing remark complimenting the women of pre-Islamic Arabia, who he claims cover everything but one eye. Um, right. leaving one eye, you know, for, for, for visibility. So this idea of the face veil, you know, being tied to Islam, you know, is in some ways accidental insofar as it's tied to um, cultural modes of dress that circulate, you know, in the, in the Near Eastern world. And, um, you know, I think yeah. within Byzantium writ large um, and within the different communities that, you know, 
Byzantine, you know, religious communities are coming into contact with, you're going to have a variety of different types of head coverings that extend to the face as well. Yes, and there's the trope in ancient uh, historiography where in order to kill a tyrant, the tyrannicides, you know, dress up as the women who go to the parties that the tyrant is. <laughs> right. Obviously, they would have covered their face because exactly. a bunch of ancient Greeks don't enter a party <laughs> simply dressed, you know, with a dress on. It's like, I'm a woman. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so do veils um, do anything sort of pragmatically, uh, so beyond their symbolic function? Um, you know, what does this ordering of the hair and, you know, or having to wear a veil or it, whether it's a net or a scarf or whatever, what does that actually do physically um, or might have been intended to do um, mm -hmm. in, in the life of a woman? Yeah. So, you know, there's, of course, as you mentioned, the most basic level, which is you know, signaling, modesty, decorum. Um, and like many things, I think it's hard to speak universally for, for all of Byzantium, but at least for uh, the early period um, in which in which a head covering seems to be functioning uh, as a custom of female dress assumed at puberty, then I think it's also signifying adulthood. Um, I think it's just signaling the assumption of responsibility um, there of reproductive age. Um, and when we think of, you know, marriage practices and the relative, you know, young ages at which people were being married, I think this is, this is not insignificant, you know, that's signaling in a very public way. Um, and then there's the, the liturgical text itself, um, you know, it connects, you know, this, this sexual component, the, the text itself refers to the head covering um, as aiding a young woman in educating herself towards self-control. Um, so there's this, um, there's this, you could say it, it's a tool in some ways. Anthropologists have worked a bit on, you know, the, um, the use of liturgy for developing virtue. Talal Asad is, is one of them who's looked at, um, Benedictine monastic rules, um, like the practice of, um, prostrating before a guest of the monastery. Um, and he talks about how, you know, this is not just, um, you know, uh, enacting uh, a particular virtue, but it's about practicing a particular virtue, you know, by regularly prostrating in front of the person who's interrupting your regular, you know, community life, you are trying to develop within yourself this honoring of a guest as, you know, someone greater than you. Um, and so this, um, because of all these notions that are that are embedded within Byzantine culture about head coverage, about covering, then the very act of, of, of having a ceremony to assume your veil at the first time, and then repeating that act, you know, thenceforth in one's life, I think it's, it's you know, signaling, you know, also a um, you know, it's a gesture that communicates, but in assuming it, one is also practicing the very things that the text itself, um, mm. you know, defines the veil as, yeah, or the head covering as. And there are also practical limitations that it imposes, uh, in, you know, outdoor activity or, uh, you know, dancing, extreme oh, yeah. parkour. <laughs> right. Yeah. And this goes back to, to the whole thing of, you uh, you know, uh, you know, the, how did veils look? What's being shown? How much coverage? Yeah. And this, I think, varied across, you know, social classes. I think it also varied regarding, you know, what women are doing. A woman who's, you know, working regularly, you know, in the house or outside the house in the field is going to have, you know, different, uh, yeah. you know, different practices in terms of how much body coverage um, she's going to be practically able to uh, to carry out versus, you know, a teenager in 
Constantinople of an aristocratic household. Right, because the the more decorum you can practice, the more and it's in a certain sense that's uh, it, it correlates with class because you mm-hmm. you have servants and other people who can do things for you so that you can remain kind of aloof from the you know just yeah. grubby material things that most people have to do. Yeah, and what comes to mind is like Sharon Gerstel's work on late Byzantine uh, you know rural. Uh, life and yeah. like the bones of late Byzantine women showing yes. you know, all the stress right. uh, of, of rigorous labor that they went through in many places. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's, I think there's definitely the, the social class issue it, that would have played out in dress as well. Yeah. So tell us about the link between hair and sex, because you bring that out in many parts of the article. I found it fascinating. Yeah. Um, so yeah, veiling and binding is very much tied up with sex. And we find this, I mean, this goes back to Homer. Uh, I mean, you have, you know, it, the, the word kridivnon doesn't show up in this text specifically, but I mean, you have it in, in other texts of, of Greece where, you know, this one word can be used to signal a head covering. Uh, it can be used to signal uh, a city's defensive structures. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it can also be extended to uh, the female anatomy. Um, so you have this, you know, this Homeric euphemism, you know, of, you know, when you're breaking through a city's walls, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's also, you know, sexual penetration or violation. Um, and there's this, you know, very complex, how to put it, there's, there's a, a complex issue of the uh, eroticization of sexual violence that we have in antiquity that carries into late antiquity. Uh, Michael Rosenberg has done some really interesting work on this and how late antique rabbis and uh, church authorities are both trying to respond to this sort of male rhetoric around the eroticization of, of sexual violence. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, but we find it in the vocabulary that carries in um, this idea of protection and that, uh, you know, the breaking of um, those barriers of protection, you know, is, is simple with uh, with sexual access um, and this goes back to I mean Hittite middle Assyrian texts we have oh, nice. uh, I mean it's it's really really embedded in Near Eastern and Mediterranean culture where we've got um, uh, in middle Assyrian law books we have a text that clearly define which woman which women should be veiled in public and which women cannot in other words, it's illegal and you will be beaten for wearing a veil in public. And it, it's all about male uh, control and patronage. So, for example, uh, wives are to be veiled in public, daughters are to be veiled in public, and even concubines are to be veiled in, co- in public because they all have a male uh, patron. Uh, whereas a prostitute has to be unveiled, according to Middle Assyrian law, has to be unveiled in public because it's a symbol of her sexual exploitability. Um, and it's wow. illegal for a prostitute to veil herself. So this is really deeply uh, embedded, and it you know passes into uh, Greek culture. It passes into you know Byzantine culture. One text specifically Byzantine that jumps out is uh, there's the ninth century uh, life of Ionikios, um, and I really like that text because um, the saint he stumbles into a woman who's uh, described as being possessed by the spirit of fornication, and the text goes on to explicitly describe her as letting her hair hang loose. So these two things are, are linked, spirit of fornication, loose hair. And then when she wants to be healed by Euonikius, um, she asks him to heal her, but her words are so indicative. She says, bind me up, bind me with self-control. And so the reason I really like that text is it's directly linking for us in a ninth century Byzantine text that, that 
connection between loose hair, loose morals, binding up the hair and binding up one's, one's sexual moral life. Yeah. Nice. Um, I was wondering if, so the, the Hittite and Assyrian examples are fascinating. Um, they're sort of adjacent. They're similar to uh, Byzantine practice. I think a sort of Byzantine could understand their symbolic logic uh, in a way. Are there societies where veiling or binding up sort of signify something sort of significantly different or, or markedly different? Uh, just so we have a context of the, the range of possibilities here. So you, you mentioned some other societies where it just kind of seems to signify something else. Yeah, I mean, we find this even in contemporary veiling cultures today that there's 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 different meanings. So the 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 easiest example would be looking at contemporary Orthodox Judaism, and this is something that we find also in in late medieval Slavic cultures where uh, the assumption of a head covering is indicative of marital status where a woman is not to wear a head covering until she has married. And that's what we have in contemporary mm. Orthodox Judaism. And yet I would, I suggest that um, what we find in contemporary Orthodox Judaism of a woman assuming a head covering or a veil or, or a wig from the moment of, of marriage is actually um, probably East European practice that's tied up with the same Slavic customs, because you can find uh Jewish communities today, like Yemenite Jewish communities and others, where they're still conserving uh, that older Near Eastern uh, practice of veils are more ubiquitous. They're not necessarily just a marital status, but women from the moment of puberty start to assume them, which is what you have in, in, in many uh, Muslim societies to this day. So um, I'd say the biggest distinction that you find in, in both in the Middle Ages and uh, to today is where some communities will use veils not as um you know a coming of age dress practice but as indicative of, of marital status which in many of these communities are closely linked because people are getting married so young but sure okay that, yeah that, that's fascinating um so tell us some of your favorite texts uh byzantine texts about women's hair so you, you talk about quite a few of them uh, which are the ones that you find most evocative and why yeah, well, that like I mentioned already, that life of Ioannikios, I, I just yes. I love it because it makes that point for me about, about linking the two. But there's there's many others. Um, the life of Pelagia uh, is another one that describes her not covering her head before her conversion. Um, and then for the early Byzantine period, we've got you know Chrysostom, uh, we've got others, we've got uh, you know a Cyril of Alexandria he calls the covering of a woman's head part of natural law. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and oh, then for, for later centuries, um, you know, there's a text you know well, because you translated it, uh, the encomium for his mother, Michael Psalos. Mm -hmm. um, there's a reference there to that common trope of the converted prostitute. It's, <laughs> you find it all over texts, you know, this converted prostitute, and he picks up on it, you know, the, the prostitute who now converts and covers her hair. Uh, but it's interesting because he even alludes to her covering her face there in that text. That's another one of the few. Mm -hmm. But uh, he also, you know, undercuts that claim because he refers to former clients recognizing her on the street. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's it's sort of this trope of, you know, the more coverage, the more you're manifesting, you know, your conversion, even if temporary in that case. Uh, and uh, but yeah, there's there's that, that. I mean, that's one of the difficult things that when you're looking at these texts, you know, how much how much is, you know, using the um, 
how much are we using a common trope and how much is yes. it indicative of actual real dress practices? And I think there's enough evidence to indicate that it was, you know, an issue within real dress practices, but we also have to be, be cautious. Yeah. You're exactly right. And especially about women. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it goes back to, I think, Alexander Kajdan, who, who realized that the way in which Byzantine authors talked about women's lives was more indebted in some respects to ancient, you know, classical tropes exactly. about like the women's quarters and things right. like this, which may not have existed in reality outside the palace or, you know, some other extremely conservative place. Um, and that we might've just been projecting all of these ancient Greek customs that just became um, sort of embedded in the language of writing about certain kinds of things uh, in, in classical authors. Yeah, and Kajdan draws out many examples of, of women moving freely or what we, yes. you know, more freely in society. And I would take that a step further. I would say one of the things that enabled that free movement is precisely because uh, a Byzantine woman, when traveling, you know, semi-independently or moving more freely than authors had previously, you know, scholars had previously imagined, is because she's able to manifest uh, a certain degree of modesty and decorum within her publicly performed, you know, dress mm -hmm. habits. Yeah. Oh, yes. There's so much evidence for, you know, female mobility and uh, you know, running businesses and, mm -hmm. you know, um, managing their properties and in public and so forth. That, that's undeniable. Um, but yeah, so let's, oh, that's a bell. Sorry, that's the, the radon inspectors. <laughs> They're coming to pick <laughs> up their gear. I don't think I need to get involved in that. Um, so let's bring this back to your, um, uh, your home turf, which is liturgy um, and um, the study of the history of religion. Uh, so is there specifically religious significance to hair binding or veiling um, yeah. that you see through your study of liturgy? Certainly. So I think the fact that this form of dress habit of binding up, covering the hair is assumed as a part of, of, a, of a religious ceremony of a liturgical blessing that's officiated you know, by, by a Byzantine priest, it, it elevates this, um, this social norm to a religious significance. Um, and it's no secret that liturgy uh, was a major player within Byzantine society, you mm -hmm. know, from sacraments to stational processions, you know, it's, it's, it's everywhere. So when a sorcerer norm of dress is uh, like, you know, one that's being advocated by influential, uh, you know, church authorities, when that social norm is being uh, elevated to, to formal liturgy becomes part of formal ritual, um, a rite of passage, if you will, within human development, um, I think it had the potential to make that dress object itself a religious object. Um, and for devout Byzantine women, um, presumably that performance of modesty through the head binding and the head coverage um, later in life, throughout one's life, um, would be linked to that religious meaning defined in the right. Now, not the case for all women. Some of them are just, you know, doing it out of habit, out of, you know, expectation, but uh, that dimension of, of religious devotion has to be there for at least some of these women and, and their agency within that, uh, you know, is, is concerningly, uh, was certainly present. Um, and in fact, the rite itself even alludes to a female um, attendant that's helping the woman in her, in her binding up. So female agency, I think is really, really important thing to acknowledge here. And, uh, you know, what a rite of passage does, if you know, to use anthropology, a rite of passage is 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 uh, is a ritual that's providing a new definition for someone entering into a new stage of life, mm -hmm. and so I think that's what 
that's what the right is doing. And that's what the right is connecting to this, this object of dress. And, you know, there's other ritual significances uh, of dress for Byzantium. I mean, for Constantinople specifically, we have relics of, of uh, the Theotokos' clothing, uh, including uh, her veil. Right. Um, so that was right, an object right, right, of veneration right. for Constantinopolitan men and women. Um, and we even have, uh, there's a Syriac text uh, that refers to one empress uh, in the fifth century, uh, Elia Eudokia, donating her veil to be used as an altar cloth. Right, yes. Uh, and so we've got, we've got head coverings and, you know, uh, veils that are also interacting with other significance, uh, you know, other symbolic meanings of veils used in the liturgy. I mean, textiles are everywhere, right? Uh, and they're in churches, and they're often being used liturgically for covering sacred objects, veiling sanctuary spaces, placing veils over um, the chalice and discos. Um, so, so veils signify something that's important. We find them used in imperial ceremonial, you know, so yeah. we've, we've got, uh, you know, by signifying the woman's body with a veil, you also have those, um, you know, ideas of, of, of signifying something sacred, which is, uh, you know, uh, part of, I mean, not to, not to remove this from, from the, the issue of, you know, the, the male, <laughs> male dominance within, <laughs> within yeah, society, yeah. but there, there are these, a whole range of uh, ways in which, um, you know, women themselves are also interacting with, th with these veiling practices. You know, if we think also just of, you know, textile production um, and artistic, you know, craft being, uh, mm -hmm. you know, carried out by women uh, who are making the very objects yes, that they yes. are assuming within the rights and within daily practice of veiling. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot there. That's fascinating. Thank you. Um, any final thoughts on this topic you leave our audience with? Um, I just say, I think, you know, this right is one of many, many cases that really stress uh, how interesting liturgy is for studying uh, social history, Byzantine cultural history. And, you know, a lot of, as I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of, you know, uh, scholars, including Byzantinists, have come to associate the study of liturgy with uh, combing through <laughs> manuscripts, compiling lists of charts and, and lengthy discussions of how, you know, one little minute liturgical gesture gets changed over time. And, and that is true. Um, and, you know, lit liturgiologists haven't always done the best to, to, you know, speak our craft to broader audiences. Um, <laughs> and there's a lot of factors to consider, you know, one of which is, you know, just the, the great you know, immensity of work that has yet to be done on, on some of the most basic levels of combing through these sources. But, um, you know, for for every aspect of Byzantine life, you know, it, it played out in one way or another generally in the liturgy or interacted with the liturgy. So, you know, for those studying imperial ceremony, there's lots of liturgical rites, not just, you know, things in the book of ceremonies. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if there's a social phenomenon or historical phenomenon in Byzantium, it, it, it's reflected in these manuscripts, you know, you've got everyone's, you know, uh, everyone can find something in liturgy. Byzantine environment studies are really big today. We've got prayers and rites for earthquakes and drought. And um, so that's my uh, apologia, if you will, for Byzantine <laughs> liturgical studies and for- That's your uh, pitch. It, that's a good pitch. Uh, it's well put, you're, you're quite right. Um, now, I, as a Byzantinist, I know I signed up for a certain amount of pain uh, coming through liturgical <laughs> manuscripts might be crossing that, that line, but you're, you're exactly right. There's so much to be discovered uh, in these texts and in, you know, 
studying them historically, culturally, and so on. And I'm really, really thankful that you wrote this article because it answered questions that I've had for a long time, just scratching my head, which has no veil and very little hair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we should do something on men's hair, or what's left of it, uh, <laughs> another occasion. So thank you for writing it. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Gabriel, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. It's been fun to be here.